Good morning, church family. How's everybody doing this morning? Doing good? There's a story told years ago of a young pastor who's trying to get to church and the roads are blocked. And so it's cold out and the river's frozen and he pulls over and he goes to the trunk of his car and he takes out his ice skates because he's going to get to church. You know what I mean? No excuses, right? And so he puts on his ice skates and he skates and he gets to church and he sees the elders and the elders are, you know, shaking their head. They can't believe that he would ice skate to church. I mean, how unholy is this? This a new pastor, and he's skating to church. And so they get in a little corner, and they're kind of talking about it. And, and he's there nervous, and he doesn't know how this is going to go. And so the elders come back to him, and they say, well, we just have one question for you. Did you enjoy it, the skating? And he says, no, no, I didn't enjoy it at all. And they said, okay. Well, well then it was all right. <laughs> now, we laugh at that. But it's a serious matter. Because I propose to you this morning that religion has done far more to harm the church than atheism or hedonism ever could. See, this morning we're going to look at the biblical way we're we're called to engage others in the church. And next week, we're going to look at the biblical way we're called to engage others outside the church. But this morning... I want to take a look at what it means to live as disciples of Jesus in this church family. I read this observation written by a priest by the name of Robert Capon, and he said this, the church is not in the religious religion business. It has never been and it never will be in the religion business. In spite of all the ecclesiastical turkeys through 2,000 years who've acted as if religion was their stock in trade, the church instead is in the gospel proclaiming business. It is not here to bring the world the bad news that God will only think kindly about us after we've gone through certain creedal, liturgical, or ethical tests. It is here instead to bring the good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It is here, in short, for no religious purpose at all, only to announce the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Yet sadly, throughout church history, there have been those who are convinced that to be a good Christian means to deny yourself even the simplest of pleasures. Even today, there are those who spend more time worrying about what their brother or sister is doing wrong than taking a look at their own heart. Jesus had something to say about that. We're going to look at that. But this morning, I want to talk to you not about two different extremes, but about two sides of the same coin. Two ways of living that both lead to bondage. Two ways of living that stop us, church, from experiencing the true freedom that is found in the gospel. And so the title of this message is On License and Legalism. We're going to have a conversation. We're going to hear a a preaching. We're going to hear what the Bible has to say about license and legalism. So first, let me just open in prayer. Lord, we trust you now to do what I cannot through your power, your word, and your spirit, that you open our hearts, that you show us the truth. I pray this morning you touch each of us in a profound way, that the abundant fullness of life you promise 
and desire for us to have be a reality, God. Lord, I pray that everyone hearing, everyone in this room, everybody online, that hears this message, God, would be set free, God. Would believe your promise to proclaim freedom for the captives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, Pastor Ken read one of my favorite scriptures. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and no longer be subject to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1. Now, I don't know about you, but you can talk to people about all kinds of things. What do you think about God? What do you think about the church? What do you think about the Bible? What do you think about Jesus? And people have all kinds of opinions, and they're not always favorable. But I've yet to experience somebody who I said to them, hey, what do you think about freedom? They're like, yeah, I'm not a fan. I don't really like freedom that much. No, everybody loves freedom. Everybody wants to be free. But what is true freedom? What is, what is biblical freedom? I'm reading a book by uh, uh, named by Oz Guinness, who's heir to the, uh, heir to the uh, Guinness uh, family beer fortune. He's a Christian. He's a social commentary. And he talks about what is going to destroy America, what has destroyed great nations throughout history, is a misunderstanding of freedom. The very thing that makes us unique is the very thing that will destroy us because we do not understand what freedom is. It's an amazing read. Very deeply theological. Freedom, what we all long for, what Christ came to give us, in fact. I remember, you know, reading that scripture for the first time, and I, you know, I'm like the hippie, you know, that was like my, I wasn't around in the 60s, my father used to say I should have been, but that, like, I get that notion, freedom, I want to be free, man, you know, all this. So when I read this, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. I remember reading that and being like, I don't know. Like, when I think of church or God or Jesus, I don't think of freedom. I don't know, am I the only one, right? I mean, is that how you grew up, Right. No, we think it's just the opposite sometimes. Yeah, this scripture right here says the very thing we long for, every human being, is what Jesus came to give us. The very thing the gospel provides, we sadly far too often miss entirely. How many Christians do you know that live in a way that is anything but free? We're going to look at other parts of Galatians 5 more in a bit. But the truth is declared clearly in this passage that God went through great lengths to set his people free from both the slavery to sin and the burden of trying to find our way back to God. Let me repeat that. God went through great lengths to set his people free from both slavery to sin and the burden of trying to find our way back to God. Throughout human history, there have generally been two very dangerous perversions of this revolutionary freedom only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sin of license and the sin of legalism. And you can be certain that legalism lends itself to a critical spirit that will rob a Christian of joy very quickly. At the same time, though, it matters how we live, doesn't it? People twist the scriptures all the time that have to do with judgment or God's grace. We're going to look at that to suggest it doesn't matter how we live. Though the Bible makes clear again and again that's just simply not the case. 
Yet there are so many Christians that tend to fall on one end of the spectrum or the other. Either it's this notion of live and let live, like the Sheryl Crow song, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Or they think it's their job to point out every little thing someone else does wrong, feeling like they themselves are never pleasing to God. And he's never proud of us. We think of God as a grumpy old man who likes to complain, make sure nobody's smiling and nobody's having fun. So here's the main point I want you to see this morning. And it's an important point, church. It's a critical point. Both license and legalism are forms of slavery. Neither lead to freedom, but instead they lead to a very different form of bondage. They are both distortions of God's intention for us. They are both derived from man-made and man-centered ways of thinking. One is based on performance, and the other is based on a distrust of Jesus. License or hedonism creates people who become slaves to their insatiable desires, never free, always longing, People whose lives bear little resemblance to the Christ they proclaim to believe in. They worship money or sex or power or position, but they don't worship God. Or religion creates Pharisees. People who seem arrogant and angry and judgmental. People who constantly hold other people to a standard they themselves could never hope to uphold. People, it seems, who cannot wait until judgment falls on others. If you hear Christians talk to people like they can't wait for judgment to come to them? See, where we ought to be gracious with our posture toward others, and we ought to be, we ought to be a little more honest in our self-assessment. But I have a friend who likes to say, we judge ourselves by our intentions and everybody else by their actions. We judge everybody else by what they do, but ourselves, we give ourselves all kind of leeway. Well, you know, I didn't really want to do that. I, I hope not to do that. Gospel freedom walks the line between legalism and license. See, God has given Christians the liberty to make decisions in various situations. But true freedom does not say do whatever you want. True freedom says there's a better way to live. Jesus, the freedom that he promises is not do whatever you want. It is believe in me because there is a better way to live. Paul defined it, 1 Corinthians 10. What, what believer's freedom means. Verse 23, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. See, true freedom is that we've been set free from living self-centered lives to living Christ-centered lives. And I can tell you as sure as I'm standing here, that if you're not worshiping Jesus, you are worshiping something else, and it will destroy you. Sometimes faster than other times, but it will destroy you. We are given freedom not to indulge every impulse, 
That's why Paul tells us, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He's saying it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. And so stand firm or assess or pay attention because if you don't, you're going to be right back where you came from. You're going to fall right back into bondage. The you you he set you free from is going to become on the throne again. And I don't know about you, but I've lived in bondage for a long, long time. And every time I thought that the things I pursued would lead to freedom or fulfillment, I was more empty and more disconnected, and I had a deeper longing than ever before. And I couldn't understand why. Augustine said, you have created us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. How long do many of us live so far away from that truth, even in the church? Trying to find our peace and rest and fulfillment and meaning and everything else. And we invite people into the church and we wonder why it's the last place they want to be. Because we're just doing worldly stuff with a stamp of Jesus. See, freedom is not doing whatever we feel. And if we think it's that, we're going to soon find out it's not the case. True freedom is being set free from self-centeredness to living and walking in Christ-centeredness. It requires obedience to God's spirit, attention to God's scriptures, and support and wisdom from God's community. That means we need each other, church. That means you need me and I need you. God exists in relationship. It's a fundamental part of of his being, of who he is. And he created us for relationships. And so the decisions we make in life, bathed in prayer, informed primarily by scriptures as well as our context, You see, we live with the idea that we can do whatever we want. If we do that, it may seem appealing at first. It may seem appealing. Do whatever you want. You're free. But in practice, it never ends the way we want it to end. Things never look the way we planned. You've probably heard this before. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you far more than you ever wanted to pay. See, I know that all too well. I've I've told people before, I had integrity as an atheist. In other words, my worldview is this is it. You get one shot, and so you increase pleasure, you minimize pain. It was wholly consistent. If that's the way you view the world, that's the way I lived. The problem was... That before externally everything started to fall apart because that will happen with some sins quicker than others, but that will happen internally, existentially. I was falling apart. I didn't understand why everything I longed for when I pursued it and I obtained it, whatever it was, I still felt empty on the inside. It was never enough. All you gotta do is look at the world. If you don't know this internally, and I think we all do, all you gotta do is look around. 
at people who try to find their meaning and purpose and value and the things of the world, it's never enough. There's always somebody better. There's always somebody who has more. It's always temporary. It's never enough. But what if the object of our affection, what if the object of our longing, what if Christ, who says the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I come that you may have life and have it to the full, what if he was telling the truth? See, Jesus invites us to seek first his kingdom, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all the, these things will be added to you. And we like that. We hear that, and it sounds good, until we realize that his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. That it involves things like die to live and serve to be great. Amen. And the last shall be first. And give to receive. When we hear that Jesus calls us to worship him alone and to live lives of service and humility, to be helpful and compassionate, to be gracious, to assess ourselves and our sin correctly. See, Paul tells us in Galatians, in fact, how we ought to live. In fact, he contrasts two ways to live, by the flesh or the world or centered on self, or by the Spirit and ruled by Christ. What the enemy does, what the enemy continues to do, is to convince us that you can live in the world and still say that you worship Christ. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. What does that even mean? When people ask me if I'm a Christian, I don't even want to answer it like that. Because people answer, I'm a Christian like I have blue eyes and I vote this way. So I always say I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I follow Jesus Christ. Because I think our churches are filled with people, and Jesus talks about it in the Bible, and he's gonna, they're going to say, well, Jesus, I had the bumper sticker, and I listened to Caleb, and I had the cross that I wore, and I wore the Christian T-shirts, and I went to the events. I, did, I cast out demons in your name. And Jesus is going to be like, but, but who are you? I never knew you. I didn't have a relationship with you. But Jesus, we did all this religious stuff. I said the name Jesus all the time. Yeah, no. I didn't have a relationship. You knew about me, but you didn't know me. Ouch. Bernice in the 830 service, she said, ouch. (laughs) Paul tells us, Galatians 5.16, keep in step with the Spirit. I love that. But I say, Paul, verse 16, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Paul doesn't pretend that these things are not opposed to each other. Paul doesn't pretend that the system of the world is kind of partly the No, they're very separate things. And so we ought not to use this list as a standard at which we judge everybody else against but ourselves, our own heart. You want to know where you stand with Jesus? You want to know how mature you are and your faith? Then these qualities that we're about to read should be increasing in measure in your life. And I don't know about you, but when I read the list, I don't know. For the eyes of the flesh are against the spirit. 
Verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy. So we see in the world. All you have to do, t- put the news on. Go to, a, go to a party, go to a restaurant, go anywhere, and you see divisions, envy, fits of anger, rivalries. There's drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Glaringly obvious. All you have to do is look at the world. Look at your own heart. Sadly, though, those people who claim to be Christ followers, and this describes their lives, but Paul says this, but the fruit of the Spirit, the characteristics that we should be possessing are this, love. Joy. Preach a whole sermon before on joy, and I've shared at Teen Challenge, you know, guys would walk around and they would look like they were so miserable. I mean, just, you know, eh. Be like, hey, how you doing? I'm good. Are you good? Tell your face. Because you don't look good. You look miserable. Joy. Doesn't come from what's happening around you. It comes from within. You're not joyful as a result of your circumstances. That's happiness. Everybody does that. Things are good, I'm happy. Things are bad, I'm not happy. Jesus promised there's a different kind of a joy. Peace. How many long for peace in your spirit? Peace isn't the absence of conflict externally. It's a peace internally. Patience. Am I patient? You ever pray for patience? Kindness. Goodness. Gentleness. If you said to 100 people, describe Christians, would they say gentle? Would one of them out of 100 say gentle? Self-control. That's a tough one. Paul says, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I love that because he's saying, if you profess to live by the Spirit, doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're going to get this right. But keep in step with the Spirit means self-assess and make adjustments. It means be aware. We're so aware of everybody's sin around us. We're so aware of our neighbor's sin and our spouse's sin and everybody else's sin and we're so glaringly blind to our own. Paul saying, keep in step with the Spirit in your life. And then I love this part. And sometimes when something comes at the end of Scripture, we can just miss it. And this is a profound statement. Verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Because Paul's telling us, Christians, after he explains to us what it looks like to live by the Spirit, he has to caution us and say, and as you do this, don't get religious. Don't become a hypocrite. hypocrite. Don't become arrogant and cold. Because he knows that's our tendency. That as we see some maturity and success, what do we do? We suddenly start to envy other people. We provoke other people. We become conceited as if any of it has to do with us. How do we assess our own walk? Is the fruit of the Spirit becoming more evident in our lives? 
Do I exhibit an increasing amount of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Or do I just know more stuff about God? Can I repeat Bible verses? Jesus says to the Pharisees, you know, you, you search for the scriptures. Because you, you think that in them you'll, you'll find me, but you miss. You miss that the scriptures point to me. But the reason we read the Bible is not to know about God, it's to know God. Intimately, in a transformational way. Matthew 7. You're going to hear me all the time when I preach say context is key. I'll say it all the time because we like to isolate scriptures and we don't read before them and we don't read after them and we don't, know, we don't know the author and the occasion and the audience. We just read things out of context and you can't do that. If you want to think that Jeremiah 20, 29 11 says God's plans are always to prosper you and not to harm you, then you've got to take the time in bondage too. The years in bondage, right? Context is everything. So Matthew 7 verse 1. And everybody stops at like the first three words. Do not judge. You ever heard anybody say that? The Bible says do not judge. Right? I mean, who hasn't heard that? The right? Bible says do not judge. You're not supposed to judge. Don't judge me. I won't, but God will, and that ought to scare you. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, first of all, the main point of this scripture is not don't judge. That's not what he's saying, and we'll see that. Verse 2, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Why are you so hyper-focused and aware of all the things your brother and sister are doing wrong and so glaring, glaringly oblivious to your own sin? That's what Jesus is saying here. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He's not saying don't judge. He's looking at the way we judge. The main point of the passage isn't don't judge. It's talking about how we are judging, how our heart is when we use discernment, when we assess we are so good at hating the sin we see in other people. And we're so good at excusing or minimizing or explaining our own. See, many people use this verse as an attempt to silence anyone trying to help them. Interpreting what Jesus means is you don't have the right to tell me I'm wrong. But the Bible's command that we not judge doesn't mean we don't show discernment. In fact, immediately after Jesus says, do not judge... He says, do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. A little time later in the same sermon, he says, watch out for false prophets. By their fruit, you will recognize them. The Bible has a whole book entitled, guess what? Judges. These judges were raised up by God himself. Our modern judicial system, including its judges, is critical. It's foundational. It's necessary. And saying, do not judge, Jesus is not saying anything goes. In fact, elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus gives a direct command to judge. When he says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly in John 7.24. So here we have 
a clue as to the right type of judgment versus the wrong type of judgment, which we're so good at, church. The Bible says superficial judgment is wrong. Hypocritical judgment is wrong. Harsh, unforgiving judgment is wrong. Self-righteous judgment is wrong. Untrue judgment is wrong. See, as a church family, we are called to help one another follow Christ. We are called to help each other mature and grow in the things of God, to speak truth in love. Sometimes maybe you're not the person to engage somebody. Sometimes maybe you don't have that kind of relationship with them. Sometimes maybe you do have that kind of relationship with them. It's just your heart isn't in the right place. Wisdom, discernment. But let me make incredibly clear to you that if you do have that relationship, that if you pray with somebody, that if you know they're a Christian, that if you're walking in life with them, to not say something to them because it would make you uncomfortable or it might cause conflict is not love. That is the opposite of love. To see somebody living in a harmful way and not say anything because it might make you feel awkward is the opposite of what love is. I know the world says love is just you let everybody, whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do, it's good. If I was dying in my drug addiction and everybody said, oh, you like to take drugs, take them. They make you feel good, that's good. Just go ahead. It's good, whatever you want to do, you just do it. Would that be loving or would that be evil? But it's the time and the place and the relationship. But we ought to have relationships with each other where we're speaking the truth in love, where we're helping each other grow and mature in Christ and the fruit of the Spirit being made more manifest in our lives. So on one hand, legalism, the sense of being religious, of being a Pharisee, of trying to earn our way to God is only going to lead to bondage. On the other hand, living in a way where we just do whatever we want, if it feels good, do it, we allow other people to do that, will lead to bondage as well. And Jesus came that we would be set free from bondage. So why would we willingly submit ourselves again? It's because we don't believe him. It's because we don't trust them. It's because like the foundation of every sin at its core, we think we know better than God does. And we will find ourselves again and again faced with the fact that that is just simply not true. Whether you believe, whether you don't believe, you're, it's simply not true. First Thessalonians 5.10, he died for us so that It's going to give us some information. It's going to give us the reason Christ died. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Build each other up. Encourage. But that means correct. Admonish. Speak truth in love. To the people who are in your circle of relationship. Jesus calls us to love one another, but I would not be expressing love if I didn't try to help other people avoid a sin that's going to kill them. I would not be a good dad if I didn't try to teach my kids. If I said, oh, whatever you guys want to do, you know, I mean, you want to eat Froot Loops for dinner and curfew, you don't have to 
Go to bed when you're tired. Homework, that's optional. You'd be like, you're not a very good father. What do you mean? But I love my kid. I just love them. You know, I just want them to do whatever they want. We understand, like, that's obviously not love. And yet we think it is when we're the children of him. When he's telling us the way to freedom. When he's telling us the way to live. And we're like, eh, I don't, I don't know. I think I might know a little better than you. I know you created me in the universe. And, you know, I know all that. But I don't know. I think I know a better way. Tell me how that works out for you. Jesus grounded all of the Christian life in two things. Matthew 22, verse 34, after hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Like, oh, those Sadducees, they're not as smart as us anyway. We're going to trap them. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? First, they're trying to test them, and secondly, you know human nature. They're like, all right, there's all these rules, and if there's some that are more important than others, maybe we should focus on those. And so Jesus, of all the rules, of the Ten Commandments that were given, and then the 613 derivatives that the Pharisees came up with, they're saying, of all those things, Jesus, what's the most important? And Jesus responds like this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. It's really not two commandments. It's really, if, if, if you read that as an outflow, or the second is, is the result of. This is one thought. This is one thing. You can't do one without the other. We want to be effective evangelists. We want to be effective disciple makers. If you love God with every fiber of your being, it can't help but change the way you love other people. It is one thing that Jesus is saying here. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this in verse 40, which is a radical statement to make, especially in this audience. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He's saying everything you've studied and taught your entire life, everything you think you know is grounded on, these, on this foundational premise that you love God with every fiber of your being, and that as a result, it dramatically changes the way you engage people around you. Jesus calls us to love, and how many churches are known for anything but love? When you ask somebody that doesn't know Jesus, describe to you a Christian, and you listen to what they say, more times than not, they describe a Pharisee to the T. Because that's been their experience. See, in contrast to the commands of Christ, the Pharisees had developed a system, 613 laws. 365 were negative, 248 were positive. And by the time Jesus had come, it produced a heartless, cold, arrogant, yet religious people. And far too many churches today still do the same thing. The problem with legalism and the problem with license is it leads us to bondage. Jesus says in Matthew, 27, uh, Matthew 23, verse 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs who look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy 
and wickedness. So the question that leads us to then is, what is it that makes us beautiful on the inside? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Romans 3 says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And then in verse 27, it says, Where then is boasting? What then do you or I have to light up our own selves about when it's all him? It will always be him. So then what about freedom, the grace that God pours out? If God meets us with grace, then we can do whatever, right? People read Romans 5, verse 20. The law was brought in so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And again, people stop there. Like as if that was Paul's complete thought. And you can't do that. And so if you continue in verse 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. In other translations it says, may it never be. Paul said, no, that's not what that means at all. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that those of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried with him? Just as Christ, Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we now too may live a new life. The gospel gives us freedom to a better way to live. That's why Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let me say that another way. The very thing that every single person in this room longs for, good life, live with peace and joy, to have good relationships with people, to flourish. God wants those things and even more. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Augustine said it this way, love God and do what you please. And I put that on Facebook, and people like it for all the wrong reasons. I know, and they like it, and they're like, oh, see, you just do what you please. Like, that's not what that says. Love God, and do what you please. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know what the desires of your heart are? Being delighted in the Lord. And if the church misses that, if we don't live that out, then what are we inviting people into? A system? A way to think? We're called to invite people into a life-changing relationship with the Savior of the world. Now, as much as we understand theologically that we're saved by faith, deep down inside, I think we think God loves us more when we do the right things, when we're... When we're now, he's, he's a parent. He's proud of us. But think of it this way. I have three kids. I love all of them with everything that I am, no matter what they do. I can't love my children less. In fact, when, I, when somebody's struggling or when somebody's not doing the right thing, I probably pray for them a little longer. That child may, might get a little more attention. God doesn't want from us a faith that is empty and, criti- and, criti- and hypocritical, rather. It is by grace we've been saved, and it's also grace we're being made into the likeness of Christ. 
So it's not about legalism and doing works to please God, but neither is it about living the same way we did. See, obedience is part of the relational structure of knowing God. It doesn't have to do with how we come to know him, but it has instead to do with our relationship with him once we know him. Jude writes, keep yourself in God's love. Jesus tells us, as his disciples remain in his love, adding, if you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. To draw this analogy, the theologian Don Carson says this, there is a sense in which my love for my children is immutable, regardless of what they do. But there is another sense in which they know well enough they must remain in my love. If my teenagers break curfew for no good reason, the least they will experience is a bawling out, and they may come under some restrictive sanctions. There is no use reminding them I do this because I love them. That is true. But the manifestation of my love when I ground them is different than when I take them out for a meal or take my son fishing or take my daughter shopping. My love is different in the two senses and the latter will feel much more like remaining in my love than falling under my wrath. And we understand that as parents. Yet the Bible says God corrects, disciplines those he loves. You know, I remember thinking of my life and never blaming God for my choices and how I ended up. But I remember one time saying, you know, Lord, I know it wasn't your fault, but why did you allow things to get so bad, you know? Why did you allow me to get so far? And in my prayer one day, I remember him saying, because that's what it took to get you to the end of yourself. See, that was love. I didn't understand it at the time. It didn't look like I thought love should look, but that was love. See, every day, every moment, it's about a choice. It begins with putting our trust in Jesus for salvation, and it continues as we trust him instead of our own urges and our own inclinations every day. Whether we walk in the spirit or we surrender to the flesh. With Adam came sin and shame. And with the blood of Christ comes freedom and new life. So if you're here this morning, you have a choice. You can live in bondage to sin with a void that will never be filled. I promise you, as sure as I'm standing here, hiding in shame while you can be set free to strive together in his power and his spirit with his church to become more like him. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it to the full. Do we believe in Jesus? See, religion motivates people through threats and a desire for reward, but Christianity motivates us through his grace and love. But we are called to live differently. 
and we ought to be gracious toward others and honest with ourselves. Psalm 1611 says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. See, God isn't the grumpy old man that doesn't want us to have fun. He is the loving father who sent his son to die so that we could be free. So that we could have a life better than we ever asked or imagined. Let's not miss that, church. Amen. Stand with me as we close.